0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'll give a couple of minutes of a neuroanatomy primer ahead of our main speaker tonight, which is uh, Dr. Michael Wilson. So just a warning, in previous talks, I've tried to match the anatomy with the talk. And this week, we're going to review peripheral nerves, uh, which is a little bit um, doesn't quite match our talk for this evening. But, um, you know, peripheral nerves are can be affected in a lot of different neurologic diseases. And sometimes, um, when they, the peripheral nervous system is affected with the central nervous system that can give us a lot of information Um, But just a heads up that it's not quite a match day, so what you learn in the anatomy might not be as relevant for the talk. But let's begin. Again, I'll review some definitions, and then I'll go break down the parts of the peripheral nervous system for you. I'll talk about one of our main diagnostic studies that we use to diagnose peripheral nerve disease. And then I'll I'll actually also talk about lumbar puncture, which can sometimes be helpful, but Actually, it also helps us for diagnosing central nervous disease conditions too. And then I'll talk about some of the more common causes of peripheral nerve dysfunction in neurologic disease. Going back to our uh, main major unit of the nervous system, the neuron, and uh, uh, the axon, which sends signals from the cell body of the neuron, is covered by this Schwann cell, which provides myelin around the nerve. And that helps with conducting signals in the nerve sheath along the axon. Each nerve is really composed of a bunch of these axons that are bundled together. And uh, one axon that's covered by a myelin sheath is wrapped in endoneurium that is bundled with a bunch of other axons and a cluster of them form a fascicle that's covered by perineurium and then several fascicles are bunched together to form the full nerve trunk. The nerves are, come out of the spinal cord and they form these nerve roots as they come out. Each nerve root comes out from a different spinal level, and some of them, for example, in the cervical region, and then also in the lumbo-sacral region join together to form what we call a plexus. Here's just a depiction of some of the nerves uh, at the end. So the spine actually ends at the level of around L2, and then after that, it forms It turns into the cauda equina or the horse's tail, which is just a collection of the nerves that are coming out of the spinal cord. And they sort of flow out and exit at different levels. Each nerve root goes to a different part of the body and receives sensory information from different parts of the body that we call dermatomes. And they also, uh, some of these nerves also provide a motor control at dif- of different muscles. Different nerve roots actually combine together to form nerves. So one nerve can be formed from multiple nerve roots. For example, let's take a look at this nerve coming out of the brachial plexus this is the median nerve it goes all the way to the hand if you trace it back up through the brachial plexus and this is a plexus is just where nerve roots come together and um, then kind of divide off again so this median nerve here is uh, coming up and you can see that as it goes along the trunk the divisions and the cords the median nerve you can trace it back gets its supply from multiple nerve roots so it has a contribution from the C5 nerve root and also the C6 nerve root and those are the main nerve roots that go to the median nerve and then you can do this for really all the nerves this is uh this brachial plexus is right passes right underneath the clavicle bone right here, just as it uh, right above the first rib. And then the lumbosacral roots also form together to form the lumbar plexus down here in the pelvis region, uh, forming the major sciatic nerve, and then also the femoral nerve and the obturator nerves. Peripheral nerves are composed of nerves that receive sensory information, control motor, muscle function, and also have autonomic functions that we've discussed in the past, controlling uh, the, how um, tight the, uh, blood vessels are, also how quickly the heart beats, and um, how well the gut functions. So those are functions that the peripheral nerves control as well. One thing to keep in mind is that peripheral nerves can regenerate, but they do very, very slowly. So um, when the nerve is damaged, it can actually grow these axon sprouts. And over time, um, several axon sprouts uh, form into one axon again, and then is covered by the Schwann cells that remyelinate the axon. Uh, These nerves grow uh, about, just to give you an idea, about three to four millimeters a day. So for a nerve to really grow, say, from the spinal cord all the way down to your toe, that could take more than a year. And it really depends on a lot of factors as to whether the nerve is able to keep growing, including whether there's a tract along the nerve, if there's been damage along the tract, or crush injury, then the nerve is uh, less likely to regrow back. But if it's, you know, clean break and the nerve is able to be put together, that uh, is good and helps promote nerve growth. Unfortunately, we don't have any treatments to really help nerve growth, but hopefully those are in development. EMG and nerve conduction studies, also known as um, electromyography, is our main diagnostic tool for looking at how well nerves are functioning. The EMG portion of the test uses a small concentric needle. Um, It doesn't have this on the end. This is just trying to show, I guess, the electrical signals. That the needle is picking up. It's just it just looks like a regular uh, small needle, maybe slightly larger than an acupuncture needle. That's inserted directly into the muscle, and from just that needle, we can look at motor unit action potentials that are coming really from one fascicle, and uh, we can tell a lot. Um, by having people activate the muscle, um, by the size of the action potential, the duration of the action potential, that gives us information on how healthy the communication between the nerve and the muscle are. And then uh, also if at rest, there's what we call spontaneous activity, that also lets us know that there's some that have been damaged, and you know, a kind of leaking um, electrical activity that's abnormal, and it's not in a coordinated fashion with activity. The other part of this very <laughs> lovely test is uh, using electrical shocks, and uh, electrodes are placed over the muscle belly along the arm. Uh, this can be done all, all along the body, and then some small shocks are given, and then the shocks are then picked up by these sensory electrodes down here. And what you can see is sort of a combination or compound motor action potential, because this is a surface recording and not directly in fascicle. it's a summation of number of different units together. But we can tell how quick by stimulating along the arm, we can tell how quickly the stimulation is taking to travel along the axon. And this also tells us if there's demyelination or the size of the compound unit, action potential might tell us something about uh, actual damage to the axon the nerve. Um, so if you had, um, for example, a disruption or demyelination here, then you might notice a slowing of how quickly the signal passes right at that spot. So um, this is a nice test, although it's not fun to be the person getting this test, getting poked with a needle and shocked with electric shocks. Another diagnostic test that's useful that we sometimes use um, for uh, neuropathies, or more specifically for polyradiculopathies, when multiple nerve roots are affected. And if multiple nerves are affected that don't fit a good pattern, the typical pattern that we normally see, or if, especially if we see other findings, like, um, like cortical findings as well, then we'll do a lumbar puncture, also known as a spinal tap, to collect some of the fluid that's really bathing the nerve roots, not only in the spine, but also circulate up to the brain. So um, it's really a way to sample some of the environment around the brain to measure the pressure and also measure the components of the cerebral spinal fluid. Or CSF. We usually do the lumbar puncture in a lying position and we go at a level where the spinal cord is already ended. So that way we know that the needle will not damage the spinal cord. And um, even though it's going into a space where the nerves are, the nerves are, you know, covered by a slippery, that slippery uh, perineurium. So they really slide away from the needle. So the needle doesn't puncture the nerves either. Cerebral spinal fluid, I would say, you know, 98% of the time comes out as clear and colorless, um, but sometimes it is an abnormal color and that can give us a little bit of an idea of what's causing problems in the brain and along the nerve roots. Uh, it could be hemorrhage if there's a little bit of a red tinge, active bleeding. And then if it's cloudy, that might signal meningitis or maybe even a uh, really um, aggressive cancer. Okay. So um, for the next couple minutes, I'll be talking about some of the most common diseases that affect the peripheral nerves. Diabetes by far is one of the most common. It affects about 8.5% of people in the U.S. That's over 25 million patients, and half of those people with diabetes will have a symptomatic diabetic polyneuropathy. Even more of those will have, um, if we do a more careful biopsy or EMG nerve conduction study, they'll have signs of neuropathy that um, they're not aware of. This schematic just shows the distribution of the nerves that are affected in diabetes. Most often we see this pattern where the uh, longer the nerves are, the more likely that the nerves are affected, and it kind of goes up in an ascending pattern. We also sometimes see abrupt loss of a motor function or sensory loss in one or in kind of contiguous nerve root patterns, uh, so either a lumbosacral radiculopathy polyner- on one side, or even a thoracic polyneuropathy on one side. And this can be sudden, it uh, can accompany weight loss, and then a more rare condition is what we call mononeuritis multiplex, where just kind of multiple nerves are affected an ulnar nerve, median nerve, and maybe the peroneal nerve as well. And then diabetes can also affect the nerves that go to the heart, the gut, so the autonomic nerves as well. And we really think this is a very complex process. So even if people get achieved very good control of their blood sugars, that might not stop the progression of diabetic polyneuropathy. And a lot of factors are contributing to that. There is, um, we think, uh, clogging of the blood vessels that are going to the nerves. Um, There are changes in cell signaling and, uh, and synthesis of different components of the axon at the cell body. There's also some demyelination in cases and degeneration of the axon. Another common uh, cause of neuropathy is just from compression or entrapment syndromes. So, here is a, a schematic of or a picture of one of those intervertebral discs that are between the spinal processes that cushion the spine. As we age, this is pretty much inevitable. We get bulging of the discs and if the disc bulge at a certain location, it can start pushing against the nerve root and different uh, locations. And there can be really major compression. And if the disc actually even herniates out. Uh, sometimes people come in with foot drop, and that can either be due to a disease at the L5 nerve root or even a peroneal neuropathy, like from crossing the legs or uh, sometimes very tight clothing can do it as well. And then carpal tunnel syndrome is very common. People have numbness, tingling, pain in the fingers or this part of the hand. And that's really because the median nerve passes through this carpal tunnel. And um, if this ligament, if there's any inflammation, that really um, restricts the nerve and compresses the nerve causing symptoms. So often that can be treated just by helping reduce the inflammation, keeping the wrist straight, especially at night during sleep, or sometimes people will get a release surgery to just release this ligament and allow some more space for the median nerve to pass through. I also wanted to talk about Guillain-Barre syndrome because, you know, it's, you know, often cited as a complication of vaccines and, and, you know, can kind of happen suddenly and seems a a little bit mysterious. So Guillain-Barre syndrome is an autoimmune disease where the body itself makes antibodies against components of nerves. Often these are components of nerves involving the myelin, so uh, most often we see a demyelinating pattern of when we do the test using EMG nerve conduction. These are the, the demyelination can affect both motor and sensory and even autonomic nerves. And it can follow just, um, you know, any pattern you can think of, uh, it, that Guillain-Barre can present. As. So, um, you know, it can affect the whole body, it can affect just the legs, it can go up the legs, it can start in the face and the head. And um, so, very variable but it's always something that we as neurologists look after and um, try to diagnose because it can progress very rapidly over the course of a couple days and um, people might need a lot of support to get them over it. But the good news about Guillain-Barre syndrome is it's uh, something that uh, starts and usually peaks within um, one to two weeks and then starts to improve and so, um, because peripheral nerves are, do regenerate, most people do recover a lot of the function, um, you know, but there's a minority that don't fully recover. Here are the references that I used if I didn't note it otherwise on the slide. And then uh, I'm really excited today to introduce Dr. Michael Wilson. He'll be talking to us about difficult to diagnose neurologic disease cases, advances in genomic testing, metagenomics for neuroinfectious disease, cancer, autoantibody detection for inflammatory conditions. And I think what you can tell just by this talk is he really is in the class of his own. Um, Dr. Wilson, he not only specializes in infectious disease, but also autoimmune syndromes um, in the central nervous system. He's part of the Division of Neuroimmunology and Glial Biology and directs the UCSF Center for Encephalitis and Meningitis. He has a medical degree here at UCSF, then completed neurology residency and a fellowship at Harvard. And then, you know, now is very active in the clinic, has made a tremendous impact on diagnosing rare conditions and people with neurologic symptoms that have never been described before, and then um, also is very active has an active laboratory where he's really interested in um, studying using these genomic technologies not to only to diagnose uh, diseases um, but also understand the mechanisms of how these Diseases progress, and um, he's been working with collaborators on developing therapies for these patients that he helps diagnose as well.
1: Thanks so much, Maggie. Thanks for the introduction, everyone, and I'm really excited to be here. And um, I hope that uh, this is this is fun. It's a very uh, case based presentation, so hopefully that that is fun uh, to, to see kind of how these cases play out. So just wanna define some terms uh, before we jump in. So um, encephalitis just means inflammation of the brain, um, and it, it's not a diagnosis, it's just a, it's a syndrome. So it's a description of the fact that there is inflammation in the brain. It doesn't tell you anything about why, as we'll talk about, there's a whole, there's hundreds of reasons as to why the brain might be inflamed. And then meningitis is inflammation of the meninges or the thin uh, tissue coverings around the brain and spinal cord. And some patients can have both inflammation of the brain and the meninges. And we say they have a meningoencephalitis. There's another term, myelitis, which we'll use, which is a fancy word for inflammation of the spinal cord so again those are just descriptions of phenomena but not not uh, diagnoses and uh, as dr. Wong said that we, we do have a, a center that you know cares for and does research uh, to better understand this kind of diversity of conditions that can lead to brain and meningeal inflammation and you know there's It's not just that there are many individual diseases, but there are even just multiple categories of diseases that can cause brain inflammation. The one on the left, if people have seen the movie Contagion, um, that obviously we're um, hopefully rounding the corner on a pandemic. This is a thankfully fictional story about a different pandemic. It's of a neuroinvasive virus um, that instead of causing pneumonia um, uh, in people, causes a brain infection. Um, and so there are many infectious causes of encephalitis, both from, from viruses, but also bacteria and fungi, parasites. Um, and then there's an increasingly recognized group of immune-mediated causes of encephalitis or autoimmune causes of encephalitis where there is no infection or where maybe there have been an infection, but it's come and gone. And then uh, one's own immune system kind of turns on the brain and, and causes areas uh, causes inflammation in specific areas. And so this was a, a book published a few years ago um, by a woman who developed an autoimmune encephalitis. And thankfully, she got sick in 2008, 2009, which was a couple of years after her disease was uh, discovered. Um, and and uh, so when she got sick, doctors uh, recognized once when initially she was thought to have psychiatric uh, condition, but once it was recognized that she had brain inflammation, instead of assuming she had a viral infection, uh, they recognized that she had this newly recognized autoimmune disease, and they immune suppressed her. And although she was sick for quite a while, she eventually recovered and wrote this book about uh, her experience. Notably though, it's not a memoir. Um, the, the condition that she had um, uh, essentially erases your memory for that period of time when you're ill. So she had to go back, she was a reporter before she was ill and she had to go back and report on her uh, experience by interviewing her family, her boyfriend, doctors, um, to really understand what had happened to her because she she had no memory of it. And I think, you know, what's there's been excitement about the recognition of these autoimmune conditions um, because some of them are quite treatable, but it's also raised a lot of um, uh, anxiety in the hospital. When a, a person comes in with encephalitis, now there's a recognition that some of these folks, if you suppress their immune system, given things like high dose steroids, they can make a remarkable recovery. But if they have an infection that you failed to diagnose, then, um, suppressing their immune system can make them quite sick. And so um, there are always patients like this in the hospital where the doctors day by day are debating, you know, is it infectious? If we haven't found anything yet, should we try steroids? Um, and so those debates go on all the time. So we'll talk a little bit about, and I should say that about half of patients with encephalitis, encephalitis in the hospital don't get a diagnosis. So, so this problem of, of not knowing what's going on is a big one we'll talk about infections first. So like I mentioned, there's a whole diversity of pathogens that can cause uh, brain infections. Um, And traditional diagnostic tests for infectious diseases are what we call hypothesis-based or candidate-based tests. Um, The idea is that physician- We'll try to be clever, you know, think about, you know, who this person is and everything about them. What are their hobbies? Where have they traveled recently? Um, Do they have pets? Have they, were they recently camping and had a lot of mosquito bites? Um, What's their MRI look like? What, uh, do they have certain, a typical rash? And based on all those data that they collect, um, they try to come up with a relatively short list of possible infections and they try to keep the list short um, because as we learn, you know, the most of the testing we do for neurologic infections is on spinal fluid and we don't have oodles of spinal fluid to work with. So we have a limited sample to work with. And also there's just hundreds of infect- potential infections and, so you, and, and we know that for each infection on the list, with conventional testing, we're going to have to send off one, two, or three individual tests to either rule in or rule out that infection. Like we've seen with coronavirus, we might send an antigen test, or a PCR test, or a culture, um, and each of those tests requires sample, and so you run out of sample pretty fast with that kind of approach. The other thing about that approach is you can't pick up a bug that isn't on your list. If if someone has a raging viral infection, but you've only sent off a PCR for a herpes virus, you're not gonna pick up the West Nile virus that they might have. And so um, that approach can, find things you're looking for, but you won't get surprised that way. And so it's hard to identify an emerging infection, an unusual infection, et cetera. And so that's one reason why um, oftentimes we fail to find an infection even when one is present. And so an approach that um, we've worked a lot on at UCSF um, is to take a a different tack um, when it comes to diagnosing neurologic infections. And so the idea is not to um, probe with uh, uh, tests that pick up unique aspects of one virus or one bacterium or another, but rather to leverage the fact that all pathogens, um, except for prions, um, have nucleic acid, meaning they all have DNA or RNA genome. And with the rapidly decreasing costs of gene sequencing, um, now we can go in and, assess all the DNA and RNA in a sample rather than going in with probes that are specific just for a herpes virus sequence or just for a West Nile sequence. We don't have to be picky anymore. We can go in with millions of random probes, amplify up all the genetic material and just sequence all of it. And, and, you know, that, um, used to take weeks and millions of dollars, um, but now um, sequencing all the nucleic acid in a sample can take a few hours and cost a, f- a few hundred dollars. And so typically we'll get out maybe 20, 10 to 20 million individual sequences from a spinal fluid sample. And we know that because it's a human sample that many of those sequences are gonna match to the human genome. And so there's a big computational, uh, algorithm that that goes on once we get the data and the very first step is just to match all those sequences to the human and anything that matches to the human gets set aside Um, because again, we wanna look at the non-human sequences in the sample. And so once we're left with the non-human sequences, which from spinal fluid is typically about half a percent or even less, um, we then take those non-human sequences and just match them to big publicly available federal databases that just have sequences from every organism that's ever been cataloged. And we just ask the question, you know what, what best do they match to? Um, and that way you can identify known infections that are known to cause meningitis and encephalitis, but you can also find things that um, maybe are known to cause infections in other parts of the body, but you've never, you just didn't think about as causing a neurologic illness. Or maybe you find a novel virus and, and you might say, well, if it's if it's new, a new virus and it's never, it's not in your database, how are you gonna get a match? Well, um this is, you know, SARS coronavirus two is a great example. The Chinese did this. Um, where they, they did metagenomic sequencing. Um, they matched the non-human sequences to a database, and it wasn't a perfect match. It's like doing a Google search where you misspell the word, and it'll tell you a word that it's closely related to. And so when they search those SARS-Coronavirus-2 sequences in the database, they matched to other coronaviruses, specifically SARS coronavirus um, one, which popped up about 20 years ago. It was, but it wasn't a perfect match. It was clear that it was distinct from SARS coronavirus so once was a new virus. Um, but it, but it was similar enough that they knew that, you know, the category of virus that they were, that they were dealing with. And again, that type of analysis, even ten years ago, would take a couple of weeks, and now the the basic pipeline runs in about ten minutes. So the computational um, power that's uh, and uh, efficiency of the algorithms has been another um, enabling uh, technology for this this type of diagnostic tool. And so we've report we've done uh, case reports, case series, and then a large study which I won't go into that got published a couple of years ago, but I'll just. you some highlights. This was the the earliest case that we worked up of a young boy in Wisconsin who'd been in the hospital for months um, with an undiagnosed meningoencephalitis. Um, and was doing very badly. Um, they they looked for many infections because he was an immune-compromised child. And he, But even though he's immune-compromised and they were worried about infection, they'd sent off so many individual infectious tests and they came back negative. They started to think maybe he had an unusual autoimmune condition. And so they um, immune suppressed him and he got really critically ill. Um, but fortunately, we, in him, we were able to identify uh, a bacterial infection that they hadn't thought of um, because it's not common in the US. And it fortunately was a very treatable infection and he made a really remarkable recovery. Then the question was where did the infection come from? It turned out he uh, visited Puerto Rico. 10 months before um, and it acquired it there and um, the, the doctors caring form just hadn't um, connected that travel history because um, it was so far away from from his current illness um, to, uh, you know, kind of think about infections that were prevalent in Puerto Rico. Um, Another case of a a woman who was seen in San Francisco with, and you can see these white areas here in the brain, these are all big abscesses in the brain. One of them is actually broken through the brain uh, surface into something called the ventricle, the fluid filled space in the brain. So this is pus spilling into the ventricle. So she had a raging meningoencephalitis and had a huge workup, including two biopsies of her brain without a diagnosis. In sequencing in her identified a rare amoebic infection. Another case was of a man who lived in Australia, and they sent us samples of brain tissue and spinal fluid. He'd gotten an acute encephalitis. Uh, You can see inflammation here in one of the hippocampi and one of the temporal lobes. But then uh, he represented about three years later, and you can see this is his brain uh, early on, and then this is his brain three years later. You can see the ventricle has got from here to here has gotten much bigger um, and that's because the brain has shrunk so much So he has this massive atrophy of the brain and again he's an immune suppressed individual and so we we looked for an infection and found a virus I'd never heard of before that's um, Cache Valley virus and Cache Valley's in Utah um, and this is a mosquito-borne virus so I was a little worried when we first got the data back, that this was an error somehow, but it turned out that um, when he first got sick three years before, he'd actually visited the US and had gone on a camping and rafting trip um, and had been exposed to a lot of mosquitoes. And so the thinking is that he actually acquired this viral infection three and a half years before, traveled back to Australia where he continued to have this chronic disease, um, and um, it's an example of where, um, you know, a virus kind of traveling to a new locale had never been seen before in Australia, so it would have never made sense for Australian doctors to to test for this. And then the last case I'll highlight was a middle-aged physician who'd had meningitis for 16 years. Usually we think of meningitis as an acute um, process, but there are cases of chronic meningitis. And she'd had a giant workup over those years. She'd been treated for tuberculosis, for herpes virus infection, for autoimmune conditions and um, never Uh, got better. And in her sequencing found a pork tapeworm infection. Um, And uh, we think that um, she's originally from India, and we think that that was an infection she acquired as a child. It's a very common neurologic infection. um, But the reason it hadn't been tested for in her is because it presented in an unusual way. Usually this worm will uh, cause many cysts in the brain, and she didn't have those. And so even though it's a known neurologic infection, it presented in an unusual way. So with our kind of doctor pattern recognition hat on, nobody had thought to to look for this uh, infection. And I'll tell you about a case of my own. This is a young man that I followed for a number of years who has an autoimmune condition that caused a very severe myelitis, um, inflammation of the spinal cord um, before I met him. And when I saw first saw him for the first time he had, um, the inflammation um, had, had died down, but he was left uh, paraplegic. And you can see this is a picture of his spinal cord and this kind of these bright areas along the back of the spinal cord, that's damaged from his autoimmune disease and we, we treated him with, um, an immune suppressant drug to try and prevent this from ever happening to him again. And for a couple of years, he did well, again, he didn't recover a lot of function in his legs, but he was, he only had one small additional attack. Um, but then I heard about him that he had come to the emergency department and was pretty psychotic. So he's very confused and uh, belligerent uh, was hallucinating. And so there was a worry, you know, was this related to his, underlying disease, or um, could he have an infectious complication, you know, what, what was going on, because now he's immune suppressed. So they did a spinal tap, um, as we've heard about, They and he really didn't have much in the way of inflammation. This is a normal number of immune cells. His protein was a little high, but that it's hard to interpret. And then they sent off a bunch of these candidate-based tests to rule in or rule out specific infections, and that was all normal. But then it turned out that he'd been been using drugs newly um, in the recent past. And so the thought was maybe maybe this wasn't part of his neurologic disease. Maybe this was due to something else like substance abuse. So you began to see a psychiatrist that I know, but the psychiatrist kept bugging me that you know, in addition to the substance use problems that he really thought was cognitively not doing as well. So we kind of reopened the case. We repeated the spinal tap, and now there were some immune cells kind of more than we would expect and his brain MRI had changed. So he had some, some scarring here and here in a region called the insula. Um, He also had some new atrophy. You can see kind of too much space, these black spaces in the brain and way too much space for, you know, late 20 year old. Um, And you can see that here. And there's some white matter changes here in the myelin that again, were not there before. So something was going on. And so we, I sent off, um, some conventional tests to rule in or rule out particular infections, and those didn't weren't revealing. So we did the sequencing test and found a, a virus uh, called an enterovirus, specifically something called virus B5. And these are viruses that cause like hand, foot, mouth disease in kids, um, and uh, but in patients who are immune suppressed, these viruses can cause a very serious brain infection. And this was, you know, a surprise to me. Um, again, why did he get this and why this virus is common, but why did it cause this unusual problem in him? Probably because he was on this immune suppressing drug. Um, but thankfully, we were able to give him back some antibodies from blood donors and also got access to an investigational drug that treats enteroviruses. And he's he's made actually a remarkable uh, clinical improvement and it's uh, starting a job but was actually quite demented for another number of months and it uh, was very, very scary. Um, Want to highlight too, um, some, uh, you know, I, I mentioned we spent years kind of focusing and figuring out how to best analyze the few non human sequences in, in in from these data sets but like I mentioned even in someone with an infection who should have a lot of non-human sequences, about 98, 99% of the data we get out are human. And so, you know, you, you think that, well, there must be some information in there. And so we've been, focusing on that more recently. So I'll tell you about another case. This was a 70-year-old woman with a history of high blood pressure, depression, and autoimmune disease, a couple autoimmune diseases. And she presented to the hospital with some kind of slow cognitive decline and, and unstable gait. And they did an MRI. And you can see here, this is these bright areas, again, are areas with a little bit of swelling and scarring. And then this is a different type of scan in which it doesn't highlight the areas where there's more water, but these kind of bright areas here, those are areas where there's a little bit of breakdown of the blood brain barrier. So the contrast that the doctors give by IV has leaked into a little part of this tissue that's in in suggesting there's some inflammation there. And then this is another type of scan showing that um, some areas of the tissue are also not getting enough enough oxygen. And so what was going on there? So she had a spinal fluid exam and she had too many cells. So something, uh, something clearly is going on. They looked for, uh, they did a test called cytology where they take those, the pathologist will take those cells from the spinal fluid and look at them under a microscope to see if any of them look like tumor cells, because tumors can actually cause meningitis as well. Um, and, And then we did sequencing to look for an infection and we didn't find anything. It turned out, though, that she did get a diagnosis. They biopsied one of those lesions and found that she had a rare kind of lymphoma, so a a B-cell tumor, and it was a B-cell tumor that was hiding within her blood vessels in the brain, which is why some of the areas of the brain weren't getting enough oxygen. We thought, well this cytology test, like looking at the blood cells, the, the immune cells in the spinal fluid didn't show the lymphoma, but is was there anything in the sequencing data that, that we generated to look for an infection that might in retrospect have told us that there was a lymphoma there? And this, this work was done by Wei Gu, who's now uh, on faculty at Stanford. And that was his question. You know, we have some very imperfect tests on spinal fluid to look for uh, malignancies, but Wei wanted to analyze the DNA fraction of the human data that the infectious disease test generates to say, is there a tumor signature? Because it turns out that many tumors, one of the hallmarks of a tumor is that they're, those cells are not normal. The, the, they have many chromosomal abnormalities. They have deletions of some regions of the DNA and they have duplications of other regions. And so he wanted to just see, can I see that in the, in these cases? And so he looked at a bunch of cases Um, And this is the case that that we just talked about. And you can see this is the kind of this, a normal cell or normal DNA from a human tissue without cancer will just have an orange line going straight across. But if there are regions of the chromosomes, here are all the different chromosomes that are duplicated or deleted, then you'll have deviations off this line. And so this patient clearly had um, that kind of generic cancer signature in her spinal fluid, again, that was generated by this infectious disease test. And these are some other cases that Wei looked at. This is actually comparing the spinal fluid signature of a melanoma case, to the tumor signature itself. And you can see there's um, some consistency here between the original tumor and what's in the spinal fluid. And also again, here and here um, with another case of melanoma. So this, and what was exciting about this is it detected, um, we detected about 60, 70% of these really hard to diagnose cancer cases. And the nice thing, too, was this type of approach had no false positives. So in all the folks with other diseases, we didn't see a pattern like this that would make us worry about cancer. So I think this is is something we're working on to try and roll this out as another kind of um, uh, piece of data that we can get from this originally uh, intended to be infectious disease test. And then the last side of the coin in terms of the human data, which I'll just save for a minute is we also sequence the RNA which is you know when a gene gets expressed it makes RNA that gets translated into protein and so a gene that's being highly expressed makes many co- many RNA copies of itself to make lots of protein that it encodes for and so we've been we have a paper coming out in a couple of weeks in which we've compared folks with a hard to diagnose infection, tuberculosis meningitis, with folks who had other diseases that mimic TB. And we were able to show that both by detecting the bug, but also by looking at the RNA gene expression of people that um, we got even better diagnostic accuracy. So, which makes sense um, that that the genes that your body will turn on to fight TB are probably very different from the ones um, the immune system turns on to fight a virus. And so that that's something that we were able to show in this upcoming study. So I wanna switch gears to the autoimmune side. So we, we hear about a lot of cases where people are worried about infection, but then we find out a lot that patients actually don't have uh, infectious diseases. And so we've wanted to in parallel develop tools to identify these autoantibodies. And this is, these are just some beautiful picture, pictures from a close collaborator, Sam Pleasure's lab. And so one of the um, tool kind of initial tools that we and others use to look for autoantibodies, specifically antibodies that target uh, neurons or other cells in the brain, is to take a a brain slice, um, expose it to the patient's spinal fluid, and let, if there are antibodies in that spinal fluid that bind to or specific for a protein in the brain, then they'll stick. Um, so then we wash off, you know, the, the spinal fluid and any antibodies that haven't stuck, and then we use a second probe to make to fluoresce any of those antibodies that's stuck to a region of the brain. And so anything that's green in these images, it's green because antibodies in a patient's spinal fluid stuck to those cells or, or proteins in those cells. And so these are just. This is the cerebellum, it's a beautiful structure in the brain, really important for coordination and balance. You can see here, there's these beautiful, there's this kind of line of green cells called Purkinje neurons um, that are all lit up because this patient has an antibody that's binding to a protein that's highly expressed in Purkinje neurons, and they had very severe imbalance. This is another case where these Purkinje neurons are highly expressed. And this is a syndrome in which um, patient, this is the hippocampus, so really important for short-term memory. And this patient has antibodies that are binding to some protein in many hippocampal cells, and they have a lot of cognitive issues. So this this type of approach tells you there's an autoantibody there, but it doesn't tell you what the specific protein target is. And so to do that, to do a better job of finding the target, we've been using a tool called phage Display that um, kind of uh, plays to our strengths of sequencing. And so the way it works is we've, uh, with the computer, designed DNA sequences that overlap each other and, and cross all the protein coding regions of the human genome. And to, to kind of cover all that territory with um, DNA sequences that are about 150 nucleotides long, you need about 700,000 of these little guys. And now um, it's, it's relatively cheap and fast to have companies just synthesize these stretches of DNA and they come in little tubes. And then you can have these these, uh, DNA sequences incorporated in the genomes of bacteriophage, which are harmless viruses that infect bacteria, not people. And these phage will express the proteins encoded by that DNA on their surface. And so you have a soup of trillions of phage, each of which are displaying a little piece of a human protein, and you incubate those phage with spinal fluid, which has the antibodies. You let those antibodies bind to any of those human proteins that, they're, that they bind to, and you pull out the antibodies and the phage to which they're bound, and then we sequence that part of the phage genome that we know has the code that encodes for this human protein, and we figure out what that human protein target is. And so I'll tell you about a case. This was another patient I saw in clinic a few years ago who came with um, about nine months of severe imbalance and double vision. He lost his job because um, he was so impaired. And you can watch here his eye movements. So you can see his eyes are jumping around kind of in a rotational manner, and they're not perfectly aligned either. He's got double vision. And so he had had to quit his job because of this. He couldn't pick up his children uh, because he would fall over. Um, So he's very disabled. And he had spinal fluid looked at and it was inflamed. So he had uh, increased number of cells. He also had evidence of increased antibody production in the spinal fluid. and He had a little... lesion um in the cere- in the cerebellum and then uh, extending to the brain stem and, and if you put a even though this is a small injury if you put an injury there that could produce kind of all the symptoms that this patient was displaying and so interestingly he had a history of cancer even though it, and it, even though he recovered from it some patients have an, auto, an immune response to a cancer that can cause damage to the brain and so that's what was suspected in this case. So I gave him steroids and told him to come back um, a few weeks later. And thankfully, he was much better when he came back. Um, but the testing for known anti- autoantibodies had come back negative. So we said, well, we're going to do research on your case in the lab, but we want you to stay on those that medication because it's helping you. And he said, okay, I'll do that but he had to switch his insurance because he'd lost his job. So I wasn't able to see him in clinic anymore for a while. So uh, a while later, when we'd had results back from the lab, I called him with the results um, and was hoping that he'd been doing well in the meantime, but unfortunately he hadn't been. So he'd been, because he didn't have a name disease, he'd been re-diagnosed with multiple sclerosis first. And then, uh, after he did poorly on m s treatment, um, he had this new scan um right before I called him, and they saw this little area of brightness in the brain stem that 's a little bit bigger on this side than the other side and When I was talking to him on the phone, he said, "You know they 've told me I have a fatal tumor in my brain stem, and they had, we had he was all set up to get brain radiation and chemotherapy. Um, but we were able to see him again. And it turned out this was not due to a tumor. He did not have MS. What he really had was one of these autoimmune diseases that had been triggered by, by his, his prior cancer, which was in the testicles, not in the brain. And so we had found, and this was work done by Callie Mandelbrand, my close collaborator mentor, Joe Derisi. We'd found an antibody targeting a protein called kelch protein 11. Thankfully, with you know, talking with folks at Mayo Clinic, it turned out that they too had been collecting spinal fluid from men for about 20 years um, who had a history of testicular cancer and imbalance but hadn't identified the target of the antibody. Um, but when we told them about Kelch, they tested for that in these men, and all the men had the same antibody to the same protein. And so now, instead of it being one patient, it was thirteen, and now there's well over hundred patients with this condition. And so this is a newly, um, it's a test, it's a diagnostic test that's now now available to find this disease. I'll just end with one last case. Um, this is a. 45-year-old woman who had melanoma, and she was given one of these new drugs that have really uh, revolutionized cancer care, um, something called nivolumab, which is a class of drugs called immune checkpoint inhibitors. And so these drugs basically take the brakes off the immune system to to allow the immune system to more aggressively attack cancers. And again, they've been amazing for a huge number of uh, malignancies. And I don't wanna um, take away from their, you know, really wonderful f- effect for treating hard to treat cancers. But not surprisingly, um, when you take the brakes off the immune system in some patients, you could develop an autoimmune disease. And rarely now we're seeing in these folks it's on these um, immune checkpoint inhibitors can get encephalitis, they can get neuropathies, they can get, uh, autoimmune diseases where the nerves communicate with the muscles or the, against the muscles themselves. So, um, so this, this woman, you know, that was the suspicion in her case. And so we looked at her spinal fluid again in Sam's lab and saw that she had um, this brilliant staining in the cerebellum again, as well as some other brain regions. And again, she felt like she was drunk. She had very severe imbalance. And we ran that phage display tool and found that she had antibodies to two, two proteins. It's not important what they are, but they're called TRIM9 and 67. And that have, they've been very rarely reported as being associated with imbalance in patients with cancer, um, but rare enough that they're not kind of commonly tested for. And so it really looked like that was what was hap- uh, it's what's happening in her case. Um, so this is staining with her spinal fluid, this is staining with an antibody to trim nine, and this is the overlap and you can see there's really nice overlap suggesting this really is the target of her antibody, so she's on uh, immune suppression to to try and treat this illness so i'll just I'll stop there i know um I don't want to go over and just say a lot, a lot of these are very collaborative studies and want to want to thank you know a lot of people and and uh, for the work and and our funders for support. And thank our patients for, for volunteering for these studies. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information
0: about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.